welcome to Premier League Press Box, the podcast that goes behind the scenes and brings you stories you won't hear anywhere else. I'm Ian Beach. And I'm Nigel Bidmead. In this episode, we have two interesting chats with a couple of people who've had two very different routes to the press box. Yeah, one played for England in a World Cup semi-final and the other was the first ever female commentator on Match of the Day. Paul Parker won two Premier League titles, including a double in 1994 with Manchester United, and he was England's right-back before Gary Neville. He talks about racism in the 80s, why he walked away from management and his media career. Jackie Oatley is a presenter, commentator, reporter and activist. She tells us about overcoming prejudice and working for both BBC and ITV. If you didn't know, Jackie is a Wolves fan and I caught up with her in the press box at West Ham. Which has got to be the furthest press box from the pitch anywhere in the Premier League. Agreed. I asked her if she finds it difficult to cover the club she supports. No, it's really strange, but I actually find it really straightforward to report on Wolves. I've actually commentated on full 90 minutes of West Brom playing at Wolves in an FA Cup match for Five Live. And um, I found it really straightforward because, as you know, when you've got a microphone in front of your mouth and, and a set of headphones on, all you're thinking about is the content of the game, who's playing well, who's not, who's on the ball. I mean, you have to focus on that, for goodness sake, especially here when you're about three miles away from the pitch. So there's absolutely no time for any personal emotions, especially when a goal goes in. Because, for example, today I'm here for final score. All you're thinking about is who's crossed for whom, who could have done better in defence, was it against the run of play or had it been coming? There's no time to be thinking, oh, in the grand scheme of things, that could be a, a potential three points here which could catapult your side up the table. It really, really isn't an issue. And I can understand why football fans would think it would be, but it honestly isn't. And if anything, some people might go the other way and be a bit harder on their team. But I find it really easy to just say it as I see it. Since you've been in the media, I mean, it's changed a lot, hasn't it? I mean, we use different equipment and there's a lot more outlets. And it's strange hearing you say, I work, I'm working for final score which is of course a a very well-known bbc outlet you also work for itv how does that work well three years ago itv approached me and offered me a three-year contract to present the international football including the euros and the world cup and also the darts and at the time i was doing a bit of presenting for bbc not that much and um and so it seemed a great opportunity obviously to do that but it's not as if it was every week and so they said at the time but still feel free to freelance elsewhere um, because it is only every couple of months or so and BBC were fine with letting me carry on doing freelancing and for me it's really important to be at matches I don't want to be a presenter who's in the studio and doesn't get to meet managers players go to press conferences and what have you. I still want to be very hands-on in that regard. Um, And I'm quite glad I did carry that on because now the ITV contract is up and they've lost all the rights to all the football I was presenting. So, uh, so yeah, so now it's great to be going to matches every week and I'm still doing the darts for ITV, which is brilliant. They've got another two years on that contract. Um, But in terms of presenting, it's very precarious business. You never quite know what's around the corner. So uh, it's just the modern way as well. I think if if you look at most broadcasters, it tends to be a case of working for different networks, not just one, uh, because not everybody has all the rights. The rights are spread out. And I think in the olden days, it used to be you were very much either BBC or ITV, not not both of them. But now it's it's just not that way, the way that the rights have spread out. So, um, And it's an absolute privilege to work for both of them, to be honest. Famously, you're a trailblazer. Um, has... Um 
women in the press box, women in sports journalism. Has it changed for them in the time that you've been doing it? Very much so. It really has. And now it, it's no surprise to see maybe three women in the press box on some occasions. Unfortunately, sometimes none still. Usually a female press officer at least. And so sometimes on final score, who've been very pro- proactive in in branching out and seeing who's out there and, and really looking across the whole country for who's doing what. There can be sometimes six reporters on final score who are female. Um, famously, Ken in Sheffield, I don't know if you saw the tweet about him saying it's disgraceful, can't be doing with all these women, so I'm switching to Radio Sheffield, which was very funny. I'm not sure Radio Sheffield appreciated that. Um, but it has certainly improved. And I think before, I know when I started in Radio Leeds on the non-league football, I really did feel like a bit of an alien going to a press box at Bradford Park Avenue, (laughs) this enclosed press box with gentlemen who'd been there a very long time looking at me as though I was an alien from outer space, um, listening to my every word down my massive mobile phone with notes on my clipboard. Um, So I'm just glad that I got through that because that wasn't very easy, I'll be completely honest with you, and I did feel very self-conscious and was very aware what people might be saying. And then, of course, later in the era of Twitter, you are. But I'm fortunate that before Twitter really became prominent, I joined in 2009, it still took a while to take off. I'd pretty much done all my groundwork before that, so I felt more established and, frankly, more confident and more at ease with myself. And so I don't really get as much stick now as I might have expected in the beginning. Um, But back to your point about females, there are so many more, but the problem is they're in the press box on the broadcast side, and certainly in television, it's a very attractive proposition to work in, but just not in print. That's a big, big problem. Is it a cultural thing? Is it a lack of confidence? Is it, dare I say it, a work ethic thing? Is it a misunderstanding about what's involved in writing for print media with football? Where where are the discrepancies between these girls who are loving football and wanting to do journalism courses and the women actually writing in national newspapers and local ones? Something's falling down there because they're getting into broadcast media, not into print media. So is it from their side, as I mentioned, the lack of confidence, or is it from the cultural side, the people in the in the offices and the sports desks? Or is it simply a case there are far fewer jobs now? Because as we know, a lot of our friends and colleagues have been losing their jobs despite a huge amount of experience. And that's pretty frightening to see. Some of them to 21-year-old graduates who will happily do it for a fraction of the price so there are all sorts of issues in there but um, that's certainly the next issue to be addressed one one issue that that interests me is and it it interests me in terms of you Jackie because of course you know you did that first commentary for match of the day and 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 he took a lot of stick for that uh, even before you'd even commentated um i was watching a game the other day on on match of the day and there was a female connotation it took me ages to realize just <laughs> i was just watching the football yeah. and, and it was obvious that she knew what she was talking yeah. about she identified the it was and I was, hang on a minute and do you think we are over that hump or do you think that's still one that needs to be overcome that there needs to be two or three top mm. class women football commentators before we fully accept them We've certainly made progress, huge amount of progress, and I'm just relieved to be able to switch on Match of the Day and, and hear Robin Cowan, who did the, the Bournemouth-Everton game that I was at as well last week. And I think also because her voice is very easy to listen to, that's fair to say as well, and she's very, very good. Um, so I think it's great to hear those people, and as you said, maybe it takes a while before you realise, maybe when a goal goes in and it's a little bit different, there are still people, there was a an ex-player who's a pundit on local radio who tweeted about how he didn't like it, he'll never get used to it. That's still going to go on. 
we all have our different preferences. And if we were to sit around a pub with a load of our mates and discuss football commentators, we would all feel quite strongly about certain ones. And um, there are some people who may be great on you and, and some people who you just love and everybody has a different opinion. And I think female commentators probably come into that category. My only issue with it is I just wish it wasn't about female commentators. I wish it was, oh, you know, that commentator's voice I'm not keen on rather than it being women shouldn't commentate on football. Um, I think that's all anybody from me to lots of other people have ever asked for. It's just judge us on us. So if you didn't like me as a commentator, that honestly is fine. But please don't rule out the rest of the, the women coming through who would love to commentate on football. Just judge them on their merits, not whether you did or didn't like any of my commentary. And I think the fact that there's Robin Cowan and Vicky Sparks now sharing the load, if you like, sharing the pressure out and, and being on every week now, that makes a difference because I do much of the day and didn't do another one for a few months and it was very very different to radio commentary which I was doing every week despite the, the media outcry it was as if I'd never done it before and I was actually doing it for five live every week um, now people are hearing them more often it's it's less of a big deal and those women will get more experience growing confidence get better even though they're fantastic already and people listening will hear them more on on clips on highlights on live games because there are so many more uh, digital platforms for them to be able to get that experience well uh, very interesting stuff there from jackie obviously a fantastic broadcaster as we know and lots of things to discuss i think there mentioning the fact that women are mostly involved in broadcasting of football rather than print journalism i have to say my feeling is it's the bbc who are driving this change i don't think the commercial broadcasters are quite as sensitive or proactive in that I'd agree with that. I think it's a part of the public service broadcasting remit to employ everybody, not just males. I think when we have a female football commentator on talk sport, we can say the bridge has been crossed. Yeah, there, there are female commentators, of course, that Robin Cowan was mentioned there and Vicky Sparks. They commentate on matches. And I know for a lot of people listening to this, they won't quite understand how it works. But it's possible to work on the game for what's called the world feed and then appear on the, the commercial broadcasters. So, for instance, in the FA Cup matches, there are female commentators, Robin Cowan, Vicky Sparks. They'll commentate on the games and then it will be on BT Sport, for instance. So that does happen. That doesn't necessarily mean that BT Sport have employed that person. Uh, but it is an interesting part of how the culture will change. And I think hearing people on the commercial broadcasters, as you say, it is starting to happen. And yeah, sure enough, um, we, we will, I expect, hear more of it. And of course, Sky Sports, we have uh, on the Soccer Saturday programme. For a long time, there have been female reporters around the grounds at the games. But again, I have to say, as Jackie says, there are not so many women working in print. So there are still lots of areas of the media, the, the coverage of football, where women could and probably should be more represented. I think the direction of travel is in the right direction. Undoubtedly. She also talks about commentators she likes and commentators yeah. uh, perhaps she doesn't like. And who inspired you? I, I, do you know what? I told this story on Today FM at the end of last season. Um, the commentator I definitely listened to on the radio, who I wanted to, who I, who I wanted to emulate, I suppose we all do really, was Ron Jones. Now I was lucky enough to work with Ron for for years on Today FM, and when he retired at the end of last season, I got to tell him a story whereby I did work experience when I was fifteen at the BBC at Radio Five, and they actually interviewed me before they gave me work experience, and they just, they said, "Who are your favourite commentators?" 
And, you know, Ron was number one on my list. So to get to work with Ron for years was amazing for me. I still think Ron is, is my favourite on the radio. And um, on television, I'd probably go for Martin Tyler, I think. Um, I don't think that's really sticking my neck out, but uh, I, 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 I think his, his style is so different and so notable. Uh, how about you? No, I, 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 those two choices really work for me. Ron is one of the nicest guys and, mm. and what a commentator, you know, very understated and uh, lovely to listen to. Martin Tyler, I think he's in a tradition that goes back to perhaps Brian Moore who was yeah. somebody that um, I, I really looked up to. But yep, if you were to say Ron Jones and Martin Tyler, I wouldn't argue. Just changing the subject slightly there, when you mentioned Brian Moore, I watched the other day, it's an old VHS tape of um, the Brian Clough story. It's called Cluffy. If you want to learn anything about what it's like and how to do an interview with a football manager, it's a masterclass. The, the conversation between Brian Moore and Brian Clough, it's so natural, it's... It's so different to how things happen these days. This was a, a video that was made in the early 90s. So just as an aside, if you get a chance, I recommend you have a look at that. Cluffy, the Brian Clough story, because the way Brian Moore talks to Brian Clough is so, so different from the, the corporate type of post-match interview that we're used to seeing these days. On to Paul Parker now. We've mentioned his successes with uh, Manchester United and England, but of course he came to prominence playing for Queen's Park Rangers and a lot of people probably don't remember, he actually started out at Fulham, where he made over 150 appearances. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that doesn't get talked about. This is a new age Fulham, and it just seems like those, the 80s have been forgotten. How did you end up at Fulham? Because you're an East London boy, aren't you? Yeah, Fulham had a training camp in Dagenham, and um, I played for a local team out at Dagenham, and one of the coaches there of that team had a relationship with Fulham. Fulham then opened up a training camp in Dagenham and that's where it built from there so me, Dean Coney, Steve Tapley and um, Jim Stannard were all based from that um, training camp. And there's some very famous names from, from days gone by at Fulham. Who was the manager at the time? When I come here it was Bobby Campbell but um, Bobby um, lost his job and um, Malcolm McDonald come in. Malcolm McDonald gave me my debut in 1981 and it went on from there. And what kind of grounding did Fulham give you in the game? I would say they, um, I learned about life, I think, more than anything. It's completely different to how it is, is today. You had to stand up for yourself. You had to take criticism. If you couldn't take criticism, you had to get out of the game. I learned a lot about, from being here at Fulham on the, race, on the racist side of things, you, had, you, had, you either had to get on with it, same as it was most things, or you had to get out of it. There was no one to go to to deal with it. And it kind of it hardened me up, and I think it hardened up a lot of players in that era. It was all crowd. It was crowd incidents from being a player. You suddenly then find out that certain people didn't welcome you being a player. How did you get into punditry? Was it something that you thought, yes, that's something I'd like to do? I think it just come about. I started um, managing in non-league football at Chelmsford and Welling United in Kent. And I didn't really enjoy that because I, I, being a manager meant that players sometimes didn't like you and I didn't enjoy that not being liked. Um, I started doing a little bit of work going up to Manchester and working with MUTV. Started from there really, I suddenly thought I can go to games, I can talk about it and now I can go home, close the door and it's gone. And I just enjoy that part of it, being involved, seeing old friends, 
seeing people who I played against. And there's one great thing about being this job is that you see ex-players all over the place and you don't know them, but what you do is you appreciate them and you respect them. From when they're there, you say hello, you have a chat and you move on. And that's, that's the good thing I've found about going around talking about football. When you first started in press boxes, were you a little bit intimidated? Um, I was very nervous. I found it a little bit strange. I kind of maybe took it a little bit for granted and suddenly realised that you have to work hard. It's not just turn up and because you played, you think you've done it. If you don't work hard, there's a lot of players out there, ex-players, who want to work, who want to be involved in football. So you have to, you have to take it seriously, not, not go through the motions. Do you think the press has changed their attitude towards football and footballers? Because when you were, when you were playing, there was, a, there was a tabloid circulation war, weren't there? And all sorts of stories were appearing. Yeah, um, it's definitely changed where things not so much got out. Um, players had relationship with, with press people. I had a great relationship with a, a, a person called Steve Stammers. And I still have now when I see Steve and there's a lot of the old boys, Martin Samuel, who's still about in, in that era. But um, players would stay and I don't really blame the players of today. I blame the way life has become and social media has put players into bubbles. Not a lot, some of them have made their own, but a majority of them haven't. It's been made for them, so it's made it very difficult for them to try and communicate with people because they're very, very sceptical. There's always somebody who wants to turn them over. And, and the money in the game is now huge, isn't it? So they have to look after that as well. Yeah, of course they do. The money now is extortionate. Should they be earning that kind of money for what they do? Maybe not, but if someone's going to give it to you, you're going to go and take it. Um, but it hasn't put them, it's, put, it's, it's affected people's minds about them. It's made people a little bit bitter towards them. And I don't think you can be that bitter towards the majority, <coughs> excuse me, the majority of players because it's what football has made. Football has put them in that position to where they are. It wasn't their fault that the monies that people are offering are there to be taken. But if they've got to go and take it, they can't say no to it because otherwise people will question their mentality. So um, it's just a shame, really, what has become how players, like from my day, can't play a game on a Saturday and on a Sunday afternoon go into a local pub and chat with whoever's in there, meet up with their mates. Because if they go and do that, instead of having one lager shandy, they've had 15 pints of beer. Again, much to talk about with some of the things that Paul mentioned there. Let's touch on the relationships between players and journalists. I don't know about your experience, Nigel, but I've never been able to maybe phone a player at home. That's not really been the way it's worked in, in my experience. Maybe it's different because we work in radio. I think so. Um, Paul mentioned Steve Stammers. I, I'm, I'm guessing that perhaps um, Steve wrote a column, ghosted a column perhaps for Paul Parker in the Evening Standard, maybe. There is a distance between players and media that uh, Paul uh, also touched on. As for home phone numbers, I used to have the home phone number of every Arsenal player and yeah. manager at Backroom <laughs> Star when, yeah, when I worked for Club Call in the early 90s. And you could ring anybody up. You know, and some were more amenable than others. Lee Dixon was a particular favourite until some Muppet rang him up after midnight one night and he went ex-directory. Oh, I guess, I mean, this is probably a bit of um, media history around the Premier League or whatever, but Club Call was a, a phone line. You could phone up and you could hear a recorded report, a recorded programme, if you like, that was made, a short programme that might feature an interview about... Um, players at the club or news around the club and after club call um, I worked on Gunners line which was something that was made by Capital Gold I was working for Capital Gold at the time mm -hmm. and we had the contract I guess to go along and interview 
an Arsenal player pretty much every day, I think. I used to go down to the training ground and speak to the players there. But I wouldn't have had their phone numbers. All of those interviews would have happened at the training ground as the players were leaving. So a slightly different uh, setup. So um, let's look ahead to the weekend. Where are you off to, Nigel? Uh, I've got a couple of games this weekend. Uh, the first one is the 12.30 kickoff on Saturday at Craven Cottage, one of my favourite places to watch football. Fulham against Watford. And then I've got uh, a game on Sunday as well, which ah. is Arsenal-Everton. I'm intrigued um, to see Arsenal under Unai Emery. I haven't uh, seen them so far, so it'll be interesting to see how they're getting on. So the other games on Saturday are Burnley against Bournemouth, Cardiff against Manchester City, Leicester against Huddersfield... Liverpool against Southampton. Um, I want to talk about that one in a moment. Manchester United against Wolves. And then there's a late game, Brighton Spurs. And the other game on Sunday is West Ham against Chelsea. That will be friendly. <laughs> Isn't it always? Okay, our tips for the weekend. Um, I am going to oppose Liverpool. I think one of the teams in the Champions League must slip up this weekend because... Just through the tiredness, somebody normally does. And all of the Champions League teams, by the way, are odds-on favourites to win their games. Mm -hmm. So I am going odds to... Odds-on favourites to win their games at the weekend. At the weekend, yeah. Not in the Champions League, yeah. uh, in the Premier League. I, and I'm going to go for a Liverpool-Southampton draw at 11-2. to two. You've gone for the value, haven't you? I have. Well, I've got to catch up because you, you are beating me at the moment. Fulham-Watford. Yeah, uh, I'm looking at uh, mostly because I'm going to the game so of course it's going to be a goal fest because I'm going to be there uh, over 3.5 goals okay yeah 15 to 8 mm, interesting I quite like that and, interesting um, I think as I've said before cheering for goals is honourable it is it is I take my hat off to you for that um, our thanks to Jackie Oatley and to Paul Parker two terrific interviewees on this episode and until next time it's bye, bye for now, now.